Just before 10 a.m. on a chilly weekday morning, about a dozen people stand outside a stone building. It's on 4th Avenue in Sunset Park, and it's home to Brooklyn's Community Board 7, as well as the Department of the NYPD. And for the time being, this building is also home to a library. In line, there are mothers with strollers, teens are on their phones, everyone's bundled up against the chill. At 10 a.m. on the dot, the doors open and everyone heads inside. Teens and adults make a beeline for the laptops. Some go straight for the magazines. By 10.05, people are settling into their days. Jeffrey is a 10th grader, and he heads to one of the tables and pulls out a textbook. Ever since I started to know about this library, I came here to do my homework, and it really brought up my grades. Two other patrons, Lisette and her three-year-old son, were seated in the kids' section, not too far from Jeffrey, and our producer walked over to say hello. Hi, Mommy. Oh, hello. What's your name? Leon. Leon, nice to meet you. I'm Virginia. We just moved here a year ago, and I have two little ones, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So we come here probably two times per week. I'm actually in school, and the library makes it easy when I have an assignment in my English class. Just last semester, I, I didn't have to purchase the books. I just borrowed them. At about 10.30, a lot of toddlers and their caregivers start to trickle out of the library's main room and into this other room that's sometimes a library space and sometimes a community board meeting room. The staff person has to roll out this big colorful rug and she's got a huge container of toys. So what was a pretty standard conference room turns into a toddler's play area. Diana Abrams is one of the mothers at the Storytime. She's also a teacher in the neighborhood. She's standing back and watching her son play with the other kids on the rug. I met another um, parent who had a son who was born on the exact same day as my son. Uh, we were going basically every week for about a year. And uh, Spanish isn't my first language and English wasn't her first language, but we both knew a little bit, so we were able to, co to communicate and have our kids you know, um, play with each other, and it was just, yeah, it was really lovely. Every week, there's at least one story time in English, one in Spanish, and one in Mandarin. Sunset Park is one of a handful of Brooklyn neighborhoods where English is not the most commonly spoken language, so interest in multilingual story times is pretty high. The library itself serves the zip codes with the largest numbers of immigrants in Brooklyn. This is Roxana Benavides the head librarian at Sunset Park Library, where she's been for 13 years. It's a place for where opportunities actually are within reach, and that's what we have. But it's also a place where they've, they're being empowered because information is power for the um, job placement, for the new immigrant. We are an informal educational center, too. We are also a cultural center. We are also a place that you can just come and relax. We cannot with, go without a library, a public library yeah. in Sunset Park. As we have seen many times in our system, the local libraries transform into whatever the community needs. Like Roxana said, an education center, a cultural center, a place to just pass the time. 
And Roxana also emphasized another important need in the neighborhood. Housing, housing, housing is also at the top of their needs that are the priorities in the community. Housing is a big deal in Sunset Park. In 2017, one-third of renter households in the neighborhood were, quote, severely rent burdened, which means they're spending more than half of their income on rent. So the library decided to find a way to address the community's needs. We mentioned that this library is sharing a space with the police department and the community board, but that's not its permanent home. Sunset Park Library is currently in this interim space because the branch itself is being rebuilt. For me, it's um, it's the most interesting thing that we've done from a policy perspective. That's Christy Maduro, and she's the person here at BPL in charge of capital finance and real estate for the library. A not-for-profit developer approached us with a proposal and uh, 49 units are going to be on top of the library. The library is going to be almost 21,000 square feet, which is nearly double, um, and state-of-the-art, much bigger. It'll allow the community a lot more flexibility in how it's used and the way it's used. Sunset Park is slated for a huge makeover, and construction is already underway. When the new building opens up, it'll house not only books, but also affordable housing units. That's right, Adjua. And it's a first for New York to have the library in the same building as new affordable housing units. And the units will be 30 to 80 percent AMI. Now, if you're not a New York City housing policy wonk, we will explain that means that the units will be available for families who make between 30 percent and 80 percent of the area median income for New York City. So truly affordable. Roxana is excited about it. We were making a joke, actually, and saying, somebody might be calling and say, can you please bring me a book? (laughs) Can you please bring me a book about uh, the latest book by uh, Peterson? I'm in apartment number 3B or something like that. So we don't see that it's going to be as a negative. We see it as something that is going to be positive. You know, Roxana is joking about delivering books upstairs to the apartments, but I remember the old Sunset Park branch because that's been my neighborhood for 13 years. And I remember walking into that library and realizing it was a single-story branch, which is just, you know, kind of a waste of vertical space in New York City. It was so crowded. Every table had kids at it and adults and their parents, and it was just bedlam in the most beautiful possible way. But I didn't realize this at the time. But now I know that new library is in fact going to be the third building on that site. And it's not the only one of our branches that's going to be seeing its third iteration. So the first version of Sunset Park Branch was called the South Branch, and it was a Carnegie, and it was built in 1905. Listeners, you've probably heard that name before because Andrew Carnegie funded a ton of institutions that are still operating today. Carnegie Hall and Carnegie Mellon University, to name just two. But one of his biggest investments was in public libraries. Andrew Carnegie funded the construction of about 1,600 library buildings across the United States, and about another thousand all over the world. That is a lot of libraries and a lot of money. Well, he could afford it. Carnegie was the wealthiest man in the world when he was alive. He made his money in the steel and oil industries. And Krissa, there's this interesting conversation we need to have when it comes to thinking about Carnegie's legacy. On the one hand, the money he made built a third of the buildings in our very own system. Mm -hmm. And for small towns across America, sometimes the only library around is a Carnegie building. On the other hand, however, he created terrible working conditions in his factories. He was famous for driving down wages and increasing hours at many of his factories and mills. In 1892, he supported Henry Clay Frick's lockout of unionized workers at his steel mill outside of Pittsburgh. 
an action that resulted in a brutal conflict with hired militia and state militia. About a dozen men were killed. But we now refer to him as the father of philanthropy. You know, what does that mean? And 2,500 libraries around the world were built with his money. But as one Carnegie Steelworker said in 1900, after working 12 hours, how can a man go to a library? Truth. I think we said complicated and we meant it. Yeah, I get a feeling that's what we're digging into today. You got it. I'm Adra Doucet. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. You're listening to Borrowed, stories that start at the library. So, Adjua, to dig into this complicated question of Andrew Carnegie and his legacy, we brought in some New York City history experts. That's right. Last week, we met up with Tom Myers and Greg Young of the Barry Boys podcast. We invited them to the library where I work, Brownsville Library, because it's one of those 18 Carnegie libraries that's still in use in Brooklyn. Greg and Tom told us some really interesting stuff about Carnegie, the businessman. But before we get into that, for a bit of background... Andrew Carnegie immigrated to Pittsburgh from Scotland with his family when he was 13 in 1848. The Carnegies were pretty poor. Andrew, who had only a few years of education in Scotland, went right to work. He fell in love with libraries at an early age when he persuaded his boss to let him take books out of the private library. Fast forward a few decades and Carnegie became the wealthiest man in the world and had a huge impact on the development of public libraries, free and open to all. For more on that part of the story, we asked the Bowery Boys about this Gilded Age millionaire whose money built a third of the buildings in our library system. So we're going to just get right into it. Um, We want to know, how did Andrew Carnegie make his money? (laughs) Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> That's involved. I mean, the, the short answer is in steel, uh, in steel manufacturing. He didn't steal. I was going to say. Steal <laughs> no, well, you know, well, maybe. No, no. Um, no, he didn't steal it. But it was, short answer is in the steel industry. Um, he got his start at the Pennsylvania Railroad, worked his way through that. He was a bond trader. He did all these kinds of things. He was the uh, classic Gilded Age businessman um, in terms of just uh, dealing in all of the industries that were driving the growth of America post-Civil War. But the thing to remember about all of that is it was in a world that was really unregulated. So it's not just that he's making this money in all of these industries that were legitimate, but all of that money was being made by everyone during this period in ways that um, we would later see as being unethical and even illegal. So pivoting to philanthropy, you know, he gave a gift to New York City in 1901 to build 65 library branches, which was, you know, the largest library funding gift that he'd made to any city. And uh, what do you know about that? What were the terms of the gift? Funny you shouldn't ask, Krissa. I just happened to have a printout um, from the New York Times of the article uh, published on March 16th, 1901. I, I go nowhere without, like, archival articles from the New York Times. Obviously. The headline is, Mr. Carnegie offers five million two hundred thousand dollars to New York to establish 65 branches of the public library. City must provide sites and guarantee the cost of maintenance. Mayor Van Wyck favors the plan. The terms and conditions in New York 
were pretty much the same as, you know, elsewhere throughout the country and around the world. He would give the money for the construction of these libraries as long as the city, and that is to say the voters, the taxpayers, would fund, uh, would provide the land and also fund the operation and mm-hmm. buy the books. Um, and, uh, and that's what he did throughout the country and really throughout the English-speaking world with this enormous gift. So this is a little bit of, a, of an up-the-ante with the cities, right? Like, how did the cities respond? How did New York respond? Right. Well, many cities already had their own libraries, library systems in place, right, that were often struggling. Um, and he had been doing this for a number of years. And uh, the city, you know, it wasn't, just an, it wasn't just an easy yes from the city. There was a counter here. There were people saying, well, look, we're struggling to pay for roads. We're mm. struggling to pay for schools. Then on top of this, here comes a very good-intentioned, you know, gazillionaire saying, I will give you this uh, $5.2 million to do this, to set up all of these buildings that will then have to be maintained and run. I mean, that's a huge operational expense right. as well. So there's, there are a lot of people saying, we simply don't have the money. However, I will say, although this is a debate, the very next day's Times has an article entitled, headline, City Will Accept Mr. Carnegie's Libraries. <laughs> so like, yeah, there was a raging debate, but at least it, you know the next day's paper pretty much foreshadowed what would happen. So that's, the, this is the perfect lead-in because genuinely what we you know, Carnegie's money, Carnegie's legacy didn't necessarily have anything to do with libraries. So why did he spend all this time and effort bribing somewhat reluctant or even just overtaxed and and out of bandwidth cities to build libraries specifically? Well, can I just jump in here? Because you said that he he made, you know, millions of dollars. I mean, he he amasses a, a huge, huge fortune people hadn't made that kind of money. Mm. You know, this was also a new era of immigration in the city, but also it was a new immigra- uh, it was a new era of extreme wealth. And Carnegie was different in that uh, he was one of the first to believe that those who had accrued that kind of wealth also had a responsibility to give it away. And he was also a person who believed in the individual's ability to succeed. This This very strict, strictly American ideal. And he, he, he credited books that he had read from a private library in his youth back in Pennsylvania for being sort of that inspiration that led to him becoming a better person, developing his character, and eventually becoming extremely wealthy. Since so much of Carnegie's legacy is about his personal story, that arc that you just described, how should we feel about these buildings? Because they are funded by him alone, uh, but his business policies were so directly um, hurtful to those people who he wanted to better. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is this is kind of an issue we're still dealing with. A lot of our major cultural institutions uh, are associated with, are funded largely by uh, people that we may think are doing harm to our world today. What's specific with people from the Gilded Age is the idea that business practices were wildly unethical compared to what we would view them with today. And labor practices, right? Yeah, and labor practices, especially the relationship between Carnegie and Henry Frick, for instance, um, uh, 
terribly, you, you look at that and you're like, well, it seems like it's counter to his whole mission of what the library is, right? Um, so it is, it is a little bit hard to, to wrap our head around. Uh, I, I can only say is we, can, we should look at these gifts, evaluate his legacy appropriately and where those gifts f fell in the place of his legacy, and then just try to improve the world using these spaces that he gave us over 120 years ago. I also think it's interesting, just specific to labor, because that seems to be sort of a major sticking point with, with Carnegie. Like, well, look at how, you know, he was anti-union. What's ironic is that, like, more than 1,000 libraries, 1,600 libraries, however many libraries are constructed with his money um, in towns around the country, cities around the country, that benefited greatly um, that did, it, they did help out. They were part of the social fabric, right? Right up there with schools, churches, social organizations. They, they were an integral part of those communities and helped people integrate into American society and ultimately succeed. And actually, like the town that I grew up in, Bellevue, Ohio, with its Carnegie Library, you know, was for much of the 20th century a very staunch union town. It, it like developed because of unions and because of the railroad. So there was throughout the 20th century a union rich community that was um, benefiting from this gift and I don't think anybody was asking if they should give that money back, you know? So yeah. it's, in fact, today we ask that question because in, in this example, I think unions are so much weaker. Yeah. Like we've actually lost out and maybe what we need to do is hold more programming and talks on that topic in Carnegie libraries. Greg and Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, our listeners uh, should go and listen to the Bowery Boys episode 308 to get an even deeper dive on our our problematic fave, Andrew Carnegie. <laughs> yes, a companion show to this one. That's we, right. We are very grateful to join you. We thank you very much for inviting us here to speak about libraries. And the Bowery Boys episode 308 is out today. Thanks for having us. It was so much fun getting to talk to the Bowery Boys, and really, I think their insight into the Gilded Age and Carnegie's decision to specifically fund libraries, it put these buildings into perspective for me. But meanwhile, you, Adjua, have a very different relationship with Carnegie Buildings, because while we've been talking a lot about big ideas and history, you interact with Carnegie's legacy in a visceral way every day. That's right. Since I've never worked in a public library branch, much less one of our august Carnegie's, tell me, what's it like to work there every day? Well, I remember the first time that I went to the branch, I thought I was really lucky. I'd hit the jackpot, you know? Um, and in time, I realized that there were some issues with working in such an old building. You know, basically it's issues about noise. Sound travels really easily from one room to the next because there's so many hard services. And we also have these massive noisy fans that are on all the time in the summer and sometimes in the winter too, so that heat, you know, gets dispersed evenly. Temperature is just a really big issue in the building. And the space is just not easy to navigate if you have a wheelchair or a stroller. Yeah. At the same time, it's just really beautiful. Um, and that kind of overshadows everything else. And, you know, it was meant to stand out when these buildings first went up. In Brooklyn, a lot of the Carnegies are these freestanding edifices. You have to walk up this big set of stairs to get into the building. And then inside, it's one big airy room. And originally, 
that room is supposed to be kind of a quiet space, right? It was thought to be that the working person would come here and pick up a book and then better themselves by reading. And we actually have the perfect illustration of that. We have a recording from longtime Sunset Park resident Ida Lydon, who remembers going to that first Carnegie branch as a kid. So this would have been before 1970 when that branch was torn down. This is from our local oral history archive called Our Streets, Our Stories. First of all, all the woodwork was, I don't know what you would call it, like like in an old mansion, you know, carved wood, whatever, highly polished. There was probably a janitor going around here polishing up uh, the brass. Even in the children's section, big, long wooden tables. You could sit and read. It was also, like, very quiet. If you spoke any louder than softly, you were reprimanded. I mean, as a child, I'm sure adults kept quiet to begin with. Children were not allowed even to step into the adult section. Lots of rules in those early Carnegie branches. Yeah, at Brownsville, we definitely no longer have a silent section. And it's interesting to think about that change in attitude. Because while public libraries have always been intended to serve the common person, how we go about helping and providing services for that patron is really different. And the communities that these buildings serve are changing, too. I mean, there isn't a single neighborhood that hasn't shifted three or more times since those buildings went up 100 years ago. That's that's very true, Krista. So when Brownsville first opened, the neighborhood was over 90 percent Russian Jewish, and the library was incredibly popular. That first day it opened... In 1908, 3,000 books circulated from the building. I mean, we should be so lucky to have that today. Yeah. Now the population of Brownsville looks a little different. It's 95% Black and Hispanic, and the neighborhood is also home to the country's highest concentration of public housing. Okay, that's a fun fact, but what does that actually mean day-to-day for the library in the neighborhood? What it actually means is that it's incredibly densely populated. I mentioned earlier that the library is really architecturally impressive, but that impressiveness gets dwarfed by the neighborhood's large apartment complexes. Those buildings are part of NYCHA, which means that they are run by the New York City Housing Authority. They're usually plain red brick and extremely tall. So that majesty of the Carnegie branch gets a little bit lost, making the branch incredibly difficult to find. Speaking of architecture, we found a report from 1901 written by A.D.F. Hamlin, the consulting architect for Brooklyn's original Carnegie branches. And he wrote about these guiding ideals for how each branch should look. He said they should be, quote, public monuments and have dignity and elegance so that their style would, quote, endure for long periods of time. And Krista, technically the buildings have endured, and sometimes that challenges us. The library doesn't necessarily adapt to the changing times. We really have to adapt to the space. We have to add in wheelchair ramps, outlets, and HVAC systems. It can make the interior space a little haphazard. I have another interesting quote for you, and it's from that same report you mentioned from the consulting architect Hamlin. He writes about how the design for each individual neighborhood branch should be decided and recommends that, quote, private and local preferences must not interfere with the higher interest of the enterprise. 
Wow, that's interesting. Local preferences. That's something that's changed. It's one of our biggest goals now when we're constructing new branches is specifically to have that input from the community. And we're making a lot of changes in the next several years. 13 of our branches, including my own Brownsville Library, will see major renovations. We've been running public feedback sessions and really trying to find out what particular neighborhoods need from their branches. That's right. And one of our most exciting projects is yet another renovation of a former Carnegie branch. The brand new Greenpoint Library will open in early spring, and it's not going to be like any library you've seen before. So the building um, will have a lot of sustainable, environmental-friendly features, um, including like all LED lights, a high-efficiency um, HVAC system, um, uh, solar panels on the roof. It will have um, a rainwater collection system um, with a cistern with a hand pump that we'll use to water the gardens. A rainwater collection system in a library. This sounds more like a farm than a library. And it sort of is. I mean, Greenpoint is going to get an environmental education center and a library all in one. I'll let Ames explain from here. Ames O'Neill is a project manager in strategic planning at Brooklyn Public Library, and she's been working on this library construction project for several years. Well, way back in the day, it was originally a Carnegie branch. Um, So that, you know, from pictures at least, I can tell it was a beautiful library. Um, But unfortunately, um, it was fell into some disrepair, we hear, and was torn down in 1970. Um, They built instead just a small one-story structure where it used to be, and um, that was the one that I knew, and it was um, very uh, utilitarian, I would say. Utilitarian indeed. Much like the Sunset Park Library that I first got to know, uh, Greenpoint's branch from the 1970s onwards was small. It was one room without a lot of natural light. That second Greenpoint Library branch was something that we affectionately call a Lindsay box, named for this period of construction in the 1960s and 70s during the time that John Lindsay was mayor of New York City. And a funny thing happened when we decided that the library would be rebuilt into this fantastic, environmentally friendly building. They tore down that old Lindsay box. And that was when we ran into the foundation of the original Carnegie Library. And that was a big surprise. Um, We had always maybe suspected that they had left that behind um, when they built the Lindsay box, but no one was sure. And it was a very unpleasant surprise um, because not only was it the basement and foundation of the Carnegie building, but it was all of the um, piping lined with with asbestos that was um, all around um, and that we had to stop work um, and remediate. Andrew Carnegie haunted us, um, but (laughs) he was mad that we had torn down his building. Okay, so maybe Carnegie wasn't haunting BPL, but we had to wonder. Because the building that will be up in place of Carnegie's original 1905 Greenpoint branch is going to be so very different. For one thing, it's exactly what the community is asking for. That's right. Greenpoint has a long history of pollution. There was a massive oil leak from one of the refineries on the waterfront that was discovered in the late 1970s. Newtown Creek was then declared a Superfund site. There's been a lot of grassroots environmental activism and questions about water testing and lead testing, and there wasn't really a centralized location for that. So the library seemed like a perfect place for those interests to come together. And actually, we have a whole episode about Greenpoint's environmental history and how the library got involved in the process to save the stories of Greenpoint. That's season one, episode two of Borrowed. 
So this new building is going to have a science lab for demonstrations, an outdoor reading garden, solar panels that will generate about 10% of the building's power, and information up everywhere about environmental conservation and activism. And we did ask Ames what she thought Carnegie would think about this new building. I'm not sure if he would be, you know, like appalled of how much we've changed or inspired by uh, how much we've, you know, changed to fit the, the community's needs because... Even though it's not what he imagined, we're still like serving the public in much the same way, or I would argue a better way than he did back then. You know, Krista, I don't know if you remember this, but when we were talking with Greg and Tom about what Andrew Carnegie might think about how his buildings are being renovated today, Tom brought up an interesting point made by historian David Nassau, who wrote a biography on Andrew Carnegie. Nassau pointed out that Andrew Carnegie was not a preservationist. But instead, he would have wanted the buildings going up in place of the grand neoclassical structures to be equally elegant and inspiring. And useful, you know, to what we need now. And I think we have achieved that with the Greenpoint Environmental Center and Library. But don't take my word for it. Head to Greenpoint Brooklyn this spring and see it for yourself. And before we wrap up the episode, we wanted to leave you with a few book recommendations. Joining us now with a book match list to accompany this episode is librarian John Layton, who also happens to work in one of VPL's Carnegie buildings, our Carroll Gardens Ranch. Hi, John. Hi. So you just spent the episode talking about Andrew Carnegie's complicated legacy, and you've put together a list of books on that very topic. Mm -hmm. Um, So what's the first one that you have for us? The first book is called Carnegie by Peter Crass. It came out in 2003. It's a colorful biography that fleshes out the historical details, and Peter covers a lot of the very famous episodes that Carnegie had, such as using his boss's personal library, which he had to argue his way into, at one point. And it also covers the contrast in his life of being a great industrialist. And on the other side of that is who and what did he exploit to become that. But at the same time, he recognized that legacy. And he said, you know, he who dies rich dies disgraced. And he gave away 90% of his income. The next book that I chose is Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. Now, Sherwood Anderson is not a well-known author really anymore. But this book is a document of small-town pre-industrial life. It's a collection of short stories, and each short story focuses on one of these characters, a grotesque. And it's told through the eyes of a teenage boy, George Willard, who is a newspaper man, and who eventually moves away from the town at the end of the novel. Thank you so much, John. So listeners, that was Carnegie by Peter Crass and Winesburg, Ohio by Sherwood Anderson. We've put a link to the complete bookmatch list on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcast. That list includes these titles and a few more that John selected, especially for this episode. And you can check them all out right here at the Brooklyn Public Library. Thanks again, John. Absolutely. Thanks. Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me, Krissa Corbett-Kavoris and Adjua Aduse. You can find a transcript of this episode at our website and a link to the companion Bowery Boys episode on Andrew Carnegie, where you can hear a whole lot more about Carnegie's time in New York City and a special appearance by Adjua and me. Bard is produced and written by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, Merrill Friedman, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. We are recording from Central Library's Information Commons recording studio. And guess what? If you have a BPL library card, you can reserve time here too and make your own podcast. 
Borrowed will be back in two weeks, but you can still come see us live at the Brooklyn Podcast Festival. That's this Sunday, January 26th at 5 p.m. at Union Hall. It's our very first live show. We'll be talking about books and we'll be doing Book Match Live, so you do not want to miss it. Thanks for listening. Until next time, future philanthropists.